come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 41 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I was trying to figure out what two movies to pair, and it just so happened that Jamie and I decided to watch, on a Friday night, the movie of Host. And I thought that would be an interesting one, especially because I had just gotten a copy of Jigoku, which is a Japanese film that will be the two featured reviews on this episode. I thought they paired pretty well, not like 100% perfectly, but it does make for an interesting little double feature here to kind of go over on this episode. And then also I'm going to have mini reviews of Shadow of the Vampire, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, and then I also have Part 2 on this episode as well, but sandwiched in between is Jaws 2, as well as Suspiria, the original one from 1977. I do also kind of want to lead in here is I did also watch the original Jaws, but I had the pleasure of recording with Duncan over on the podcast under the stairs for his Russian roulette franchise roundup thing that he does over on that. So that is something I just kind of wanted to fill you in there. And then I also watched In a Glass Cage that is also going to be featured over on his podcast for his movie club challenge as well. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is, that's all I kind of wanted to fill you in here on this little intro, but I'm going to go ahead and get you over to a musical break before I get into those movie reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Shot here, screaming, birds inside your ears. I wonder what you should have looked at, who's never out 
My first mini-review of this week is going to be Shadow of the Vampire from 2000. This is directed by E. Elias Murhage. It is written by Stephen Katz. It stars John Malkovich, William Defoe, and Udo Kier. This is a drama horror film from a co-production of United Kingdom, the United States, and Luxembourg. This is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, the filming of Nosferatu is hampered by the fact that its star, Max Schreck, is taking the role of a vampire far more seriously than seems humanly possible. Now, this is a film that I remember when it got released. I don't recall if my father let me rent it on the DirecTV pay-per-view or if it came out of the movie channels, but I do remember recording it off the television onto VHS. I really liked it, and it was my first introduction to Nosferatu, like the original film. It wouldn't be until college that I finally saw it, though, and I've probably seen this movie a handful of times, but it also had been quite a few years, and I'll delve into that here in a few minutes as to why. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the synopsis, if I'm going to be honest. What is true is that we start this film at the beginning of the filming for the original Nosferatu. It is going to be done by the director of Frederick Wilhelm Murnau, 
who is John Malkovich, as he's one of the best directors in Germany, or at least he thinks he is. Now, looking back in history, I do believe that he was one of them, but in this movie, he's very arrogant about what he's doing here. Now, he's trying to make Dracula, but Bram Stoker's widow won't give him the rights. He is willing to make the movie still, though, but just changing the names. This is all what really happened, and that is part of what makes this movie work for me. The production is also quite expensive, so Frederick is really walking a tightrope to get everything to work. Now, amongst his crew is Albin Grau, who is Udo Kier, and he's one of the better parts of this movie, and he's a producer. Now, his star in the movie is Greta Schroeder, who is portrayed by Catherine McCormick. Now, she's also a diva. Now, she's upset about needing to leave Berlin for making this movie, as it is the height of the season for plays, and that's where she makes most of her money for the year. And then also on the crew is the writer of the film, who is Heinrich Gallen, who is portrayed by Aidan Gillett. And his lead actor is Gustav von Wagenheim, who is Eddie Izzard. And then his cameraman is Wolfgang Mueller, who is Ronan Vibert. Now they end up going to Czechoslovakia to find where they'll film the scenes where the vampire lives in the beginning. And that is where they're also going to be meeting their star, who is going to portray the vampire of Max Schreck. Now, Shrek is being portrayed by William Defoe. Synopsis is trying to get at is that he's taken this role much more than what is actually, you know, humanly possible because he's actually a vampire. And I actually believe his name is Count Orlock. And the way it's told to the crew, though, is that Shrek is a character actor and that he is going to always be referred to as Orlock while they're on filming because he doesn't want to break character ever. Which I'm not entirely sure if they did that or if that's something that was kind of done back in the day, but... I know it's something that some actors do, like Daniel Day-Lewis is one who will kind of take on this type of thing, so it does work for me. Now to double a bit more into what I was saying in the beginning of this review, I had an issue with black and white films when I was younger, but now that that has been rectified, and it's also took me until college and taking intro to world cinema for me to come around to what I had been missing. So it's kind of just a fill in, you know, some of my backstory with this film as well as early cinema. Now when I saw this film of Shadow of the Vampire, I would have been about 13 when it came out. It intrigued me to see the original, but I had no way of getting a copy back then, and it wasn't until after I took that class in college that I finally got around to seeing this. And I'll be honest, Max Shrek's performance in a movie freaked me out. Now that I've seen the original Nosferatu a handful of times, and since history fascinates me, as does the making of films, I started to look into both with this original take on Dracula. This would be the first time that I've ever seen this movie with, you know, being much more versed in everything, and I really love what Stephen Katz did with the screenplay, as well as what Murhage did with his direction of blending the fiction of what if Shrek was really a vampire with what how like things were made with the original film. Something really had to be pointed out here though is how great a performance Defoe does. He really comes off with an arrogance of his abilities of you know being a vampire while also bringing sadness to the role. And I think one of the reasons I kind of get that is there's a line that stuck with me is that he equates how he eats to being like an old man who is trying to urinate. Sometimes he gorges, and other times he has to feed on animals just to save off the hunger. It does play for a bit of comedy as he feeds on some of the crew, and wants to continue to feed on the crew, which throws Marneau into a frenzy. So I also have to give credit to Malkovich here, as he plays his role very well, and both of them are just great, and seeing their back and forth is worth it. I think they do really well in being faithful to the era, and I like how they reenact some scenes from Nosferatu with Izzard, Defoe, and McCormick, which sometimes made me question if this was the real footage or if it's just these actors in it doing so well. Now, I know they did use some footage from the original one as it's in public domain, but it's just something that I thought they did really well. And I also think they do very well in 
making you know the costumes, the transportation used, the technology, and all that stuff looks pretty dead on. There's not a lot in the way of blood and gore, but it doesn't need it. And the blood that we do see is fine. And I think the makeup they do on Defoe to make him look like the vampire from Nosferatu is on point. The only thing that is off is that the teeth. I believe that in the original one, they're very fang-like, and we really just get his normal teeth there. Not something that ruins it, but just something I noticed. I think the acting is actually really good for the most part. I was really glad to see Kira in this movie, as he's just really fun in his role as this producer. McCormick, Izzard, Gillett, and Vibert are all also pretty solid as well. If I have any issues, it's with Carrie Ellis, who's in this movie. He isn't horrible, but I'm not sure what accent he's going for. And aside from that, he's just fine. I've seen him much worse, but he's just very average. And another issue that I have is this movie is in English. But oddly, they incorporate some German words. I am fine with suspending my disbelief, assuming that everybody's actually speaking German the whole time. But by mixing words in here, it throws me off, and I'm not a fan of that. So this is, like I said, just a fun way of mixing fiction with some events that really did happen i think that it's a good movie overall if you've never seen this i do recommend this especially for those that like period pieces or those that are a fan of the original nosferatu so i came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie and up next i have the twilight saga breaking dawn part one this was directed by bill condon this is written by melissa rosenberg and it comes from the novel by stephanie meyer this stars Kristen stewart robert pattinson taylor lautner this is an adventure, drama, fantasy, romance, thriller from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being Quillette, close in on an expecting parents of Edward and Bella, whose unborn child poses a threat to the wolf pack and the townspeople of Forks. Now to continue on with this series, this is the first one that I've actually was a first time watch that I saw with Jamie. I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but I came in with low expectations. Now, this one pretty much starts where the other one left, ended off. Bella is slated to marry Edward, like they agreed upon, with you know Edward being Pattinson and Bella being Stuart. Her dad, Charlie, who was portrayed by Billy Burke, doesn't seem too excited, but it looks like he's given up fighting it. And then Jacob Black, who is Lautner, isn't taking it too well, and we see him kind of sulk off into the woods in his wolf form. You know, despite being happy to marry Edward, Bella is having nightmares that involve her wedding turning into a bloodbath with Voltari members of Aro, who is Michael Sheen, Marcus, who is Christopher Haderdahl, and Caius, who is Jamie Campbell Bauer, being, you know, behind everything there. But the wedding does seem to go pretty well without a hitch. But then we do see that Jacob's dad, as well as a couple others from the tribe, show up to the ceremony, and this bothers some of the cousins of the Cullens, the Denali's. Now, the one who's really bothered by it is Arena, who is Maggie Grace, as it looked like she was in love with Laurent, was portrayed by Eddie Gathagy. So she is pretty bothered to see that they are there when they're the cause of all of her, you know, sadness at the moment. Now, Bella and Edward go off on a honeymoon that takes them to an island that Carlisle, who is Peter Faccinelli, got for them. This is where Bella awkwardly gets her promise from Edward where he takes her virginity. Now, it causes problems between them, though, when he destroys the canopy of their bed and then she is all bruised up. Now, she isn't bothered by this, and she has to do what she can to convince him to have sex with her again. This also creates a new problem, though, as she becomes pregnant. Now, that's where I kind of want to leave my recap here, but I find it interesting that they're actually diving into something that I don't think I've ever seen in another movie, is that if a vampire mated with a human, could it cause to impregnate her and then have that grow inside? Now, pregnancy is an interesting and scary concept to start with. 
You are growing a human that is parasitic by nature, if you think about it. It takes nutrients from the mother. Now amplify that with a vampire, and it is literally killing Bella from the inside out. I like that the CGI makes her look emaciated, as this is really a time where the CGI is used strategically. Now, if I do have an issue with this, though, is that the movie seems it can be confused about what it wants to do, and I wonder if it's because it's splitting up two different movies from one novel is because it's building up like the Voltari are going to be the major issue here, but that's not the case. It is more of the, going back to the ancient battle that they have here where the shapeshifters slash werewolves don't like the vampires. Now, one thing I do like, and Jamie would begrudgingly agree with this, is that I do like the adherence to technicalities here. Billy, who is Gil Birmingham, who is the leader of the shapeshifters, is in the right in that by changing Bella, the Cullens are violating the treaty, allowing them to attack. I can see that, you know, being frustrating, especially since Edward doesn't want to do it, but he had to agree to this in order for the order to not kill her. But I just kind of think it's funny that if she ended up listening to this, she would definitely agree with that. Another thing that I'm glad that this one doesn't do is necessarily linger on the whiny relationship between Bella, Jacob, and Edward. We get a bit of it, but it isn't the focus here. Now, I do still feel like there are to toxic things in the relationship between Edward and Bella. And the writing doesn't help in this movie, like much like the other ones in the series for me. And another thing I do also like is that we have a strong character growth in Jacob finally here. He defies Billy, who is the leader of their pack, by stating that his grandfather was the great leader, you know, in the past. Now, a lot of this is just because of the love for Bella, but we do get with his character that he deals with the baby of Bella and Edward is just extremely weird to me. I don't want to spoil what it is, but anybody who has seen this... How do you accept this? Because it's just very creepy in general, especially with some of the things that we're seeing in the world at this time as well. Now, I don't think the acting is all that good in this movie. Lautner probably is the best of the trio of stars, but he's just not a very good actor to me. He does show some emotions, even at times if it's whiny. I continue to say that Stuart and Pattinson are just flat in this movie, much like the others. Burke is still probably the best in the movie, if I'm going to be honest. I do think Ashley Green, Jackson Rathbone, and Nikki Reed are fine. I do like the cameos again by Anna Kendrick, Christian Sarantos, Michael Sheen, Maggie Grace, and Mayanna Burring. No one really stands out, though, and I wonder how much of this is attributed to the writing. I do think that the effects are probably some of the best that we've gotten in this series. I've already said what they do with Bella while she's pregnant. The look of the vampires, I'm not a big fan of in this one, though, because they actually make them look normal. I don't mind that they updated their haircuts, but, like, there's actually some, like, color to their cheeks, which doesn't make sense as vampires, and it also makes it where their eyes don't pop as much. Still have issues that when they change into wolves and go back to normal, they still have their clothing again. And I always just wish they would go a bit darker with some of the subject matter that they're doing here. But I know I'm not going to ever get that because that's not this type of movie. It's not necessarily for me. I do understand why people like it. I do give credit that it got a generation of people to kind of get into something that is reading. I think this is good filmmaking in this. I just think the writing is kind of weak. And I think it's odd to split this into two different movies. So my rating here is another 5 out of 10 in this series. And then up next I have Jaws 2 from 1978. This is directed by Jeanat Sawark. This is co-written between Carl Gottlieb and Howard Slacker, and it comes from characters based upon the novel from Peter Benchley. This stars Roy Schneider, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton. This is an adventure horror thriller from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Police Chief Brody who is Schneider, must protect the citizens of Amity from a second monstrous shark as it begins terrorizing the waters. 
Now, I'll be honest, it probably took me until I was an adult to actually watch the original Jaws all the way through. Now, my father would always put it on, and my sister, as well as myself, would watch along with him, but I mean to consciously put it on with the intention of watching it straight through, I had never done until probably, like I said, the last few years, like after I was even out of college and everything like that. Now, I knew there were sequels, but I'd never gotten around to seeing them either, and I was selected as part of the Russian Roulette franchise. Look over on the podcast under the stairs, so thanks to once again to Duncan for everything that he does and allowing me to participate in that and I ended up watching this while I was waiting to see which one I was picked for and so I decided you know to do this for prep but I ended up getting selected for the original one so check me out over on that along with the amazing Duncan. Now this movie starts with the wreck of the orca at the bottom of the ocean. We have a couple of divers that are going down there to take pictures around it as well as like in front of it and everything. But then something attacks them and we get one last image that is snapped before, you know, they're taken and it looks to be a shark. Now, we still have Brody who was awarded man of the year for Amity for everything that he did with the original attack. And this one adds another layer of element here in that his wife, Ellen, who is Gary, now works for a guy named Peterson, who is Joseph Masakolo, who is a real estate developer. He's putting in condos, so they're trying to get some investors as well as people to live there. So Mayor Vaughn kind of takes a backseat as Peterson is also now on the you know group that runs this town of the town selectmen and women. And then on top of that, their son of Mike, who is Mark Gruner, is either home from college or he's about to go off to college. Now, he's actually a pretty accomplished sailor having grown up, you know, pretty much a good portion of his life on this island now, or at least, you know, part of the where he could actually learn how to do this stuff. And then he has his friend Marge, who is Martha Swantick, who wants him to hook up with her cousin, Jackie, who is portrayed by Donna Wilkes, who is visiting. Now, he's quite leery until he actually sees her, and then he has a crush as well. Now, we get some things like we did in the first movie where there could be another shark, but there's not enough evidence to actually prove that. And then what ends up happening is these teens kind of go out as a group on their own boats and everything, and while they're stranded out there, they get attacked by this new shark, and then they end up having to kind of tie themselves together into an armada in order to try to survive, and they kind of get picked off one by one. Now, something I find interesting about that is... It almost reminded me of the story that Quint tells in the first movie about what happens when he was on, I think, the USS Arizona when that sunk and how they were picked off. I think it's kind of a cool thing to, I don't know if they consciously were referencing that or not, but it's kind of something that I pulled off and I thought that was kind of a cool thing there. And then since this film doesn't have our Quint and Matt Hooper, which I do think is kind of cool, they reach out to try to get him to see if he can come back and help. But with what he's researching currently, he won't be back you know, anywhere close to the time, and by the time he did, you know, things would be pretty, you know, tough at that point. So we really focus on Brady in this one, and we get that he's obsessed once again with trying to, you know, save this town. But the problem again is that he doesn't have any sort of evidence, so Vaughn, who is still the mayor, takes, you know, like I said, a backseat to Peterson, and they do something to kind of get him out of the way, and I just like seeing this obsession that he has, and it kind of, like I said, delves more into this character to kind of build on that. And then going from there, like I said, I thought Schneider did a really good job here as, you know, the main driving force. And everyone else kind of seems to be there in support. I think Gary is great as his loving wife, you know, but she does work for Peterson. So I love that she sticks with her husband no matter what. Hamilton isn't as much of a villain here, but I still think that, as you know, well, Masakolo takes more of that role for this movie. It is hard to fault them, though, because when you consider what evidence they do have, but we know the truth, so we're kind of biased. I like seeing Jeffrey Kramer back as Hendricks, who is the, you know, deputy. And the one, you know, who's more used to the island is I think he's always grown up there. 
and then including outside of that, we have, you know, Gruner is solid as the child of Brody and, you know, his wife. And then we also have a young Keith Gordon here. They kind of get us to the climax that we needed. It's not as good in my ad- opinion as the adventure, you know, slash hunt with the orca, but it's still interesting nonetheless. I know that Steven Spielberg was upset that the shark wasn't working in his original movie, and for me, it makes it more effective. We get much more shark footage here in this movie. I like that we actually have, you know, stock footage of sharks. I thought that was good. And I even think the practical effects with the fake shark work for the most part. There are a couple times, though, when I could tell it was fake or how it moves isn't, you know, possible in real life. As it does hurt the movie, but not enough to ruin it. I think the underwater cinematography that we get here was good. I'm glad that we see that John Williams came back to do the score for this movie. He does reuse parts from the original soundtrack, so I can't give him full credit, but I still think it works. So just overall, I think this is a worthy successor to what they did. You know, they kind of amped up the body count from what I could tell. And we get some interesting things that parallel the original movie while doing its own thing. So I came in with an 8 out of 10 here on Jaws 2. Then I have The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. This is directed by Bill Condon. It is written by Melissa Rosenberg. And it comes from the novel by Stephanie Meyer. This stars Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, and Taylor Lautner. This is an adventure drama fantasy romance film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after the birth of Renesame, or better known as Nessie as well. The Cullens gather other vampire clans in order to protect the child from a false allegation that puts the family in front of the Volturi. Now, this was me finally running out this series, as Jamie wasn't feeling well, so we decided to put this on and just power through and finish. This, again, is a first-time watch for me, and I was a bit intrigued having watched the previous four to see everything would end up. Now, much like the previous film, this one picks up right where the last one left off. Bella is now a vampire and she wakes up. She's pretty excited and the family is happy to have her. Now that she finally gets to meet her daughter, things get a bit weird though when she learns that Jacob, who is Taylor Lautner, imprinted on her. Because of this, he's quite protective and doesn't really, you know, seem to leave her side if possible. I should also point out that Bella is portrayed once again by Kristen Stewart and Edward by Robert Pattinson. They do run into issues that Charlie, who is... Bella's father of Billy Burke as he keeps calling twice a day to check on her and like Jacob predicted they're going to tell him that she passed away now Jacob doesn't want this to happen and you know to have Renesame to leave who is portrayed by Mackenzie Foy at you know the part that really kind of takes most of this movie that's the actress that portrays her and they're going to end up fleeing to Alaska so he reveals his shape-shifting ability to Charlie but doesn't tell him what's happened to Bella and why she is different now Things kind of go to a little bit of normalcy, but then things take a turn when Arena, who is Maggie Grace, sees Bella, Jacob, and Renesame playing out in the snow. She's still irate with what happened to her love, and she goes to the Volturi to tell them that the Cullens have turned a child into a vampire. This is a major problem in the past for vampires, and can be their undoing for if humanity finds out about vampires. So the leader of Aro, who is Michael Sheen, He decides that this could be the chance that he can finally wipe out the Cullens and then get Alice, who is Ashley Green, and possibly Edward to join them. Alice ends up getting a vision that the Volturi know about Renesame and that the Volturi are coming for them. So her and Jasper end up fleeing. And so then it falls on the Cullens to go around to the different covens over the world to try to get them to come around to their cause. Now it is helped that Renesame has some of the powers that her parents do where she's able to show people things when she touches them and she can also break through shields so they first start with carmen who is mia maestro 
and she's actually one of the, kind of the new mother of Arena, as well as her sisters. And then we also get to see as they go around to gain support from other vampires like Benjamin, who is Remy Malik, Zephyrina, who is Judah Siconi, Garrett, who is Lee Pace, Alistair, who is Joe Anderson, and Vladimir, who is Noelle Fisher. And then this is all going to lead to a showdown between the Cullens and their ragtag group of people, as well as against the Volturi. And then Jacob also helps to convince the tribe of shapeshifters in the area to join their, the Cullens' cause as well. Now, I will be honest here. There's some things that really kind of tick my boxes that this movie did that I was enjoying. I'd already kind of said the Volturi seems like they had buried, borrowed from Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles with how deep the mythology runs. And I like that. And for the most part, you know, the Volturi are the most powerful and are based in Italy. And I think a lot of this is some of the ones that he's that he's got to join his cause that make him where he's almost unbeatable. But we do get to see there are covens all over Europe, the Middle East, South America, as well as into like Asia and everything like that. And then we also get to see that vampires really kind of have their each of their own gifts, which are unique powers as well. Now, something I want to circle back to here is the Volturi and some of the things that Jamie revealed to me about the writer of this novel, Stephanie Meyer, is a Mormon. I could be out of line here, but I know that my grandmother is a Christian and her church despises the Catholics. I have a feeling that the Mormons could probably not be fond of them either. Like I said, I could be out of line here in assuming that. Now, what is revealed about the Volturi is that they're pretty shady and since that the vampires are old, it would be in line with things that the Catholic church used to do in the past. So I almost feel like that is kind of a correlation there that is being built. Like I said, could be wrong, but that's just something I read from the movie and I thought it was interesting. We also get some pretty cool things like the character of Garrett in this movie, that he had fought in all the United States battles that were ever fought. And it reminds me of kind of things like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, the novel, where I love taking legitimate history and then tweaking it with the supernatural. It's fascinating to me that we have the forces here that are claiming that a lot of world events were influenced by the supernatural elements. I do feel like this movie was building to an excellent climax that was going to be pretty brutal, but then it does a little cheat thing that I completely hated, and that did ruin a lot of this movie for me, which I do have to say. I do have to give credit here, if anything, that this is probably the best acted movie. We don't really get as much of the whiny and bland Stuart and Pattinson here. They're still here, and they're still kind of acting like that, but it's not nearly as bad for me. The best performance, again, from the main actors would be Lautner. I just don't feel like he's that strong. I thought Green was fine, as well as Nikki Reed, uh, Burke, and also Michael Sheen was pretty solid for the most part. He's not at his best here, but he's fine. I like the cameos by Mayanna Burring, Grace, Malik, Pace, Anderson, Fisher. They all really help to round everything out. I just think there's so many characters here that we just get enough of everybody, so I will give credit. If there is anything that took a step back was the effects. What they do with the baby's face in this looked absolutely horrible and took me out of it every time that I saw it. I just think this movie's trying to go a little bit ambitious with some of their fight scenes and it just doesn't necessarily work for me. The cinematography is fine for the most part, so I will give credit there. I will say, this series is pretty consistent across the board for me. I think this one has some interesting aspects with mythology and then correlation of, you know, the corruption of religion. I just think that this is actually going to be the my favorite of the movies and probably the best in my opinion. It's not that high though, as this is the highest rated though at a 5.5 out of 10 for me. And then I watched Suspiria from 1977 as I got Jamie to finally, you know, watch some of my other favorite horror movies. This was co-written and directed by Dario Argento along with Daria Nicolodi who write the screenplay. This stars Jessica Harper, Stefania Cassini, and Flavio Bucci. This is a horror film from Italy. This is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd.
With a synopsis, an American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize that the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of grisly murders. Now, this is one that I'll admit I had never saw until I was 30. But since then, as I am now 33, I've seen it five times. And the first time I saw it, it blew me away with the vivid colors, the soundtrack, and how brutal some of the deaths were. The more I've seen it, the more I realize how good this film really is, though, for sure. Now, just kind of fill in a little bit is that the American woman they're talking about is Susie Banyan, who is Jessica Harper, who I will admit I'm a somewhat of a fanboy from some of the things that I've seen her in. Now, she arrives in Germany to go to this dance academy, but when she shows up to the school, they don't let her in as the person who answers the call box says she's never heard of her. And then a student of Pat Hingle, who is portrayed by Eva Axon, flees out into the night and we get to see her run through the woods. Now, she seeks refuge with a friend, but she is killed that night. And then while at the school, Susie shows how headstrong she is against her teacher of Miss Tanner, who is Alita Volley, and then Madame Blanc, who is Joan Bennett. Now, when a room opens up, she says she wants to stay with, continue living with Olga, who is Barbara Magnolfi. But we see that she ends up getting sick, and then she gets moved into the school. And it is there that she really becomes close with Sarah, who is Cassini and learns that there could be something behind the scenes of everything, and she starts to look into it. Now, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast, but I got introduced to Argento because my father introduced my sister and I to a VHS he had of the movie Demons, and I know he was a producer on that film. But what I really find interesting about this movie is I love the idea of the duality of characters we have here. The school is obviously a facade for something that we see the public, but we don't really know what they do behind closed doors. This is something terrifying that, you know, that's how people live next to a murder when they don't realize, you know, the secret life that people live behind closed doors. And as I said, I'm also a fanboy of Harper. Developed a crush on her from this. I saw her in an episode of Tales from the Dark Side as well. I really like her in Phantom of the Paradise as well as shock treatment i thought she's really good in all of those things as well but i think she does a really good job here at being not believing that there is something supernatural going on here but she's open to kind of getting to the bottom of everything and then i also like the idea that she is strong-willed and that the school is doing what they can to break it and then when they can't you know they have changed their mind that they have to get rid of her i think the acting around her is very strong uh, Cassini seems unhinged from the beginning and when you learn that she had a mental breakdown after her mother passed away it all makes sense And, I mean, her best friend being murdered probably doesn't help there. I think Volley and Bennett are perfect opposites of each other. As you know, they kind of do, like, a good cop, bad cop in order to deal with the girls. It's fun to see that we have Udo Kier in this movie, as he's a great actor. But it's kind of funny that he's dubbed over and, you know, with a voice that is not his. Because, I mean, I've seen other films from him long before getting to this one. I don't want to necessarily gush too much, but I do love the soundtrack here. Goblin is a band that I was introduced to with Dawn of the Dead originally, and I just love what they do with the score here. It's one of my favorites, and one that I actually do a lot of writing to when I'm doing reviews. The practical effects are great. I'm glad this came out in a time before they had, you know, CGI and everything like that. You can clearly tell that they use zoomed-in shots to make it look like they're actually stabbing these people, but... I think it's you know just a strategic thing to do with the practical effects. The blood's a bit orange, but if you've you know listened to me before, I have a soft spot for that and actually kind of dig it. I think the movie just has an interesting premise to it. I know some people find it to be boring. I think a lot of that, though, is it plays kind of like a giallo where we're given little clues here and there, and it's kind of building to this investigation. So that could be a big part of it. But this one, you know, I think has an interesting payoff and in everything that we get that gets real creepy. 
Of course, the setting is interesting that this was originally wrote for, you know, younger girls, but instead they decided to do it with adults because of what the subject and what they're going to end up doing with everything. So I like that it has a fairy tale like feel with the doors, like the doorknobs are at like shoulder height, kind of like it would be if you're a child. I love the use of lights here. So I have to give a shout out to, you know, Mario Bava who helped, you know, mold the Argento that we end up getting. This has an odd dreamlike feel. And I can see where the story, there's not, it feels like there isn't a lot going on, but I just think with what they do and what they play with actually just works to the reveal at the end. But like I said, this is one of my favorite films. Like, there's a reason that I've only, you know, seen it like a few years ago and I've seen it so many times since then. I know not everybody will love this, but like I said, this is in my, you know, top films of all time, you know, not even just in the horror genre. So I had to come in here with a 10 out of 10 on this classic. And that's it for all the mini reviews here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. ねえ、今夜もう一度会って生と死の境をとって、お前は俺と一緒に地獄へ落ちてゆくのだ。果てしなき現世の苦しみ、拭いきれない罪の意識に review of this week is going to be Jigoku. I think that's how you pronounce it. And if it's not, if you could let me know what the correct pronunciation is, I would greatly, you know, be in your debt. This is from 1960. This is directed as well as co-written by Nobuo Nagagawa. And then it's co-written by Ichiro Migawawa. This stars Shigeru Amichi, Yutako Mitsua, Yoichi Numata, Hiroshi Hamashi, Jun Omotomo, Akiko Yamashita, Kayoko Tishuji, Fumiko Mayada, Akira Nakamura, Kimi Tokodaji. And the last one I'm going to do here is Akiko Ono. And I do apologize for any of these names that I have mispronounced here as trying my best and wanting to kind of, you know, give credit to some more of these people. 
But this is a drama horror film from Japan. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a group of sinners involved in interconnected tales of murder, revenge, deceit, and adultery all meet at the gates of hell. Now the first thing I do want to throw out here is I didn't know what the title of this movie meant until I started to kind of look into some things and I did realize that it is actually translated to just being the word hell. Which I thought was kind of a cool thing there. And then just a little bit more information on this. Nakagawa, the director, he worked quite a bit. He has 103 directing credits to his name, and he's dabbled in many different genres, where I did see that he did 11 other horror films like The Ghost of Yatsua and Snake Woman's Curse. Now, he also co-wrote this one as well as Snake Woman's Curse. Then Ichiro Miyagawa wrote only two horror films in his career. It is this one and The Ghost of the One-Eyed Man, but he did work a lot in the series of, I'm assuming, kind of kaiju films called Super Giant. I've never seen or really heard of him, but I thought that was kind of interesting that that is one of his claims to fame. As for Amachi, who is the star in this movie, he went on to be an actor, director, and writer. He did six total horror films, including The Ghost of Yatsua, as well as The Woman Vampire. And interesting enough is Nakagawa also directed that film. This is the only horror film for Mitsua, but she did work in the Super Giant films with Migayawa. And then finally, we have Numada has been in 10 horror films. And I was pretty shocked to see that he was Takashi Yamamura in Ringu and Ringu 2. And I believe that is the detective that's in the movie. So it's interesting to see him in this movie, you know, 40 years difference between the ones that I had seen previously. And then one other person I wanted to bring up here is the composer of this movie of Chume Wanatabi. He did the soundtrack and composing for 19 different horror films in his career. And that is including the, I believe it's an anime of The Haunted Castle, which I thought was kind of a cool thing. Just wanted to bring that up here while I had, you know, some time. But this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard of until I was looking through movies from the year 1960. That is when I came across this one. And I was intrigued to see that this was part of the Criterion Collection. And I figured that when Jamie and I had watched a movie that this might pair pretty well with it when I kind of, you know, got an idea of a little bit of the name and what the synopsis was. So that's why I'm making it here on this Journey Through the Aughts segment. Now we'll start this movie that has a weird setting. It all makes sense once we get to the end as we end up learning by then that we're at the River Sanzu, which is the path to and through hell. It is the border between the land of the living and the land of the dead. The movie then shifts us over to our main character of Shiro Shimamutsu, who is Amachi. Now, he is engaged to be married to Yukiko, who is Matsua. Her father is Professor Yajima, who is Akira Nakamura. We get to see that Shiro is in his classroom, and I end up realizing later on that he's actually a theology student, so it does make sense. Now, they're learning about the concepts of hell. I didn't realize until seeing this that the Buddhists actually believed in hell and that it has eight levels. I'm not versed in either the Dante's Divine Comedy, but I also know he believed in layers of hell. And we get an interesting information about the thoughts on hell here as well is that each one is different and it's designed for different type of sinners and each one has its own different punishments sitting next to shiro we see is his friend or i kind of think it's his friend of tamura who is numata he reveals that professor yajima is hiding a secret from the war in malayan which i'm not sure what war this is or if this is just a battle during a war but there's talks that yukiko will end up being pregnant before she marries shiro as they're living in sin Things then take a turn when Tamura shows up to the Yajima's house uninvited and notices that the clock has stopped. 
I didn't know this either, but this is actually a bad omen. And I'm kind of intrigued to see if this is something that is, you know, elsewhere or is there something in Japan. Now, Shiro leaves with Tamura because he kind of ruins the mood. And while they're driving, they hit Kayochi Tiger Shiga, who is portrayed by Hiroshi Izumita. Now, he was drunk and in the middle of the road, but Tamura doesn't, like, get out and check on him. And then they speed off. Which, despite what Shiro is asking, because he wants to stop and try to help him. All the while, Koyochi's mother saw what happened and who did it. And she is portrayed by Kayoko Tishuji. Now, Shiro is struggling to deal with this. He goes to see Yukiko. She has something to tell him, but he's so agitated that she decides against it at that moment. He asks her to come with him to the police station to confess. They take a taxi, but it ends up crashing on their way, and this kills her. This sends not only Shiro into depression, but her parents as well. It is around this time that Shiro learns that his mother is quite sick and is not doing very well, so he goes to where her and his father live as well as work, as it looks like they run a kind of like old folks type home where they have a bunch of older residents that they're taking care of. Before he leaves, though... Koyochi's mother and his former lover of Yoko, who is Akiko Ono, set out for revenge against him, as they know exactly what happened and who they are looking for. Now, when he arrives at the place where his parents live, he finds that his father, Gozo, is having an affair with Kiniku, who is portrayed by Akiko Yamashita, and his father is portrayed by Hiroshi Hayashi. There also seems to be some shady things going on at this place, as there is a Dr. Kusama, who is Tomohiko Otani, and a journalist of Akagawa, who is Koyochi Miya. Now, Shiro is also confused when he sees a young woman named Sachiko, who is also portrayed by Mitsawa. She looks very much like Yukiko. Now, that's where I want to leave this as... There's a lot of kind of debauchery and crazy things that happens at this old folks home that lead all of these characters I pretty much referred to where they all end up at the gates of hell and get their just punishments for the things that they do. I don't necessarily want to delve into each one what everybody did, but it kind of goes into a wild kind of sequence that I'll kind of delve a little bit more as I go into my recap of all of this. And I should leave this off as well saying that this is really weird. I thought my recap would go, you know, a bit shorter, but this movie actually has a lot of characters, which I didn't realize until I was writing the review about this. It does really feel like we have two movies in one, though. And I wasn't sure where we're going to go to, you know, from the odd art house start that we got to it. But it does settle in from there, though. And the two movies that I'm referring to is the first part of it, we're kind of getting introduced to all these characters and then learning about each of their sins. But then from there, we get to see them as they get their just punishment for everything that they've done. Now, first, I want to delve into the feel of this movie. It is quite interesting, as I said earlier, as I wasn't aware that the Buddhists believed in hell. After doing some quick research on the topic, they don't necessarily believe in heaven, but nirvana, which is a state of mind. There does seem to be a belief that there is a purgatory or a different plane where if people have committed horrible acts, they will be punished for them there. Going farther with this, Professor Yajima is where I got the information that there are, you know, the levels of hell in their culture. I like that he's a professor on this, but we never really learn what his own religious beliefs are. Going along with this, Shiro and Tamura are in his class while he is giving this lecture, so it's kind of interesting, you know, there. Tamura is interesting to me to see when Shiro goes to visit his parents, he just kind of appears. I noticed he was wearing a red shirt, and that was when I started to question if he was the devil or just an evil entity of the sort. He's actually the catalyst for a lot of the events that we have in this movie, though. He's the one who hits Kyoyochi. 
causing his mother and Yoko to want to get revenge on him as well as Shiro. The butterfly effect of what he's happened to also, you know, affects Yokiko, her family, and eventually Shiro. He likes to commit sins and point out other sins as well, including Professor Yajima, which I kind of think is a wild thing that we get here. And then kind of going back to what I was saying about the thing of hell is also is that we get to learn that, you know, what certain sins will get you to certain places. So every one of them are kind of introduced here is that we have people that commit murder and we get to see what happens to those type of people. There's something that Tamura gets punished for with some of the things that he's doing. We see what happens with those that commit suicide. We see what happens when somebody is pregnant and they pass away. And we also get to see kind of what adulterers have to go through and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting to see how all of these play out. And I mean, including that the, the doctor is accused of committing malpractice because of wanting money and the life of debauchery that he lives. And there's also the journalist who has written stories that cause people to get hurt, but does he really or is it something that's indirectly, so should he necessarily be punished for it? I don't necessarily have the answers to these things, but these are kind of questions that get posed in the movie, and I think it's kind of a cool thing that they're playing with here. Now, going along with that, Tamura pointing out sins, he also points out the bad omen of the clock, stopping at Yajima's house, taking this farther. We revisit this motif a few different times, which I like. Once we get it in the hell scenes, where there's different times where it'll show a clock, and it'll stop as just kind of almost like an art house thing where we're kind of playing with trying to say things and then showing you images of it to do kind of like almost a montage with it. But then we also see a few times that the spiral comes back up in the hell sequences as well. There are a bunch of people that are walking in a giant circle, forced to call out in agony for all of attorney for the sins that they've committed. Then we also have a spinning wheel of fire where we see that Yokiko is on top of that. And then there's another time where there's just a spinning wheel with a baby attached to it. Enma, who is the king of hell, and in this he's portrayed by Kenjuro Arashi, states as a punishment for the worst offenders, if they call out during their punishment, is to start all over at the beginning of hell. I bring that up because it feels important that in the Buddhist religion, a big part is reincarnation. This is being reborn where you're given the chance to fix your past transgressions and get closer to, you know, complete enlightenment. That seems to me like a circular pattern of life. If the good is... I would assume that the bad would be as well, which if you, you know, during your punishment are calling out and you have to go back to the beginning, that is a circular type motion there. The baby being attached, I take it that no matter what we do, we are stuck to our fate and that we are forced to, you know, live through this circular kind of life where we're born, we grow up, we're adults, we get old, we die. So seeing the baby kind of attached and going along this circle, that's kind of what I was thinking there. I could be wrong. But, I mean, it's interesting to have a character, you know, for a baby to change things. Now, since I've dropped the word, let me delve a bit more into the feel and look of this movie. This runs 101 minutes or so. It really deserves that for me. Because I know I've always said that 90 minutes is my thing. I think the extra 11 minutes are really needed because a lot of that is kind of these hell sequences, which are both unnerving and kind of creepy, and I really dug seeing. There was this undercurrent that just made me feel uncomfortable. This is in part to the soundtrack of the movie. There's just a lot of singing that mirrors events that we're, you know, getting and going to see or we have seen. I don't necessarily like it, but I like what they're doing with it. The others are really just there for the vibe. We also get Screams of the Damned, which are unnerving. The hell sequences are uncomfortable. I love the take on punishment and what the sinners have to experience for the worldly pleasures that they have went on, you know, and went after. I like following our character through all of this as well, because it almost feels like we have a journey, which kind of takes me back to thinking of Dante's Divine Comedy. Not everything we see looks great, though. 
But coming out in 1960, they did go practical with everything, and I'm quite forgiving because of that. And then where things that made me cringe also kind of works as well, because some of the things were pretty brutal, to be honest. And the cinematography, I thought, was pretty amazing as well. Now, all that is left to cover would be the acting. I really like the Amachia as our lead. I feel bad for him as he doesn't seem to really know what he wants and is pulled by those around him. Tamura peer pressures him and ruins things, which, you know, he just kind of takes. And then I also like that Tamura gets his, you know, just punishment. The growth of Shiro is really good for what this movie needs. Mitsuya is interesting as, for the most part, she's just a supporting character. I will give her credit though as she's really just playing two different roles. They aren't that different, but regardless, it really works for what we're seeing, you know, as it plays out. The Probably the best performance to me is Numata. He is such a villain and kind of just a dick, and I like what happens with his character as things go on. The rest are good for what was needed in rounding this movie out as well. Now, before... I close everything out. I just had a few bits of trivia that I found on this. This is the first movie that used elements of gore as, you know, special effects to a significant degree. The film's production company was going out of business while this film was being completed, leading to budget-saving tactics such as having actors helping dig their own holes in the movie's sets for the for hell. Now, critics were kidding that this film killed the Shintoho studio. I'm surprised, though, that this film didn't do better because I thought this was really good. And this film is also part, like I said, the Criterion Collection with spine number 352. And then again, the title is Translation is Hell. So just to close this out, I had a feeling this review would go longer as there is a lot to unwrap here. Despite all that I put down and, you know, recorded here, I still only feel like I'm scratching the surface. This movie is really exploring some interesting topics and ones that I really want to delve more into now that I've started. The acting really helps to follow the story. The art house aspects really might not be for everyone, but I really like the visuals of the things that we got. Soundtrack really helps to build a creepy vibe that we're going for as well. I will warn you, this movie is from 1960 and from Japan, so I watched it with the subtitles on. If that is an issue, I would avoid this. Regardless though, not everyone will enjoy what we got, but this movie is really interesting in my opinion. And I would say this is a good one as well. This one will be one that I will revisit and could see it going higher and with more viewings you know once i hopefully you know can kind of understand things a bit more so my rating here is going to be a 9 out of 10 and then what i'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my second featured review hi hey hi guys hey let's do a shot guys to us <laughs> Okay, everyone get in. Three, two, one. Have you ever done anything like this before? I've never done this for over Zoom. Obviously, we're not physically together, but there's no reason why Spirit can't communicate over the internet. Nothing's gonna happen. Visualize us sitting in a circle. Spirit, we invite you to use us to pass on any communication. Is there anyone there? Please come forth. That. Amy, was that you? I heard it. I heard, I heard something. I think there's something here. Did you say that? Oh, Emma, funny. There's something. You know, we've connected with something. We gotta keep going. We gotta talk to it. Hey, this is all you want! Not my fault, this is your fault! 
Run! And for my second featured review of this episode, it is going to be Host from 2020. This is directed by Rob Savage, who also co-wrote this with Gemma Hurley and Jed Shepard. This movie stars Haley Bishop, Gemma Moore, Emma Louise Webb, Radina Drandova, Carolyn Ward, Alan Emrys, Patrick Ward, Edward Leonard, Ginny Lufthouse, Salem Baxter, Jack Braden, and James Swanton. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. Now, I went through and did a little bit of research, and I'll get into the synopsis here in just a minute, but it looks like director Rob Savage has worked in TV on stuff like Britannia, Fear House, True Horror, and Bite Size Horror. Now, these all seem to be either television shows or just shorts that he has done that are... It looks like he's based in the United Kingdom, so it looks like stuff that he's done over there. And what I also read is that he's an award-winning director slash writer for shorts. And this seems to be one of his, if not his first, featured film. And I'll get into a little bit more information about that when I get to some trivia later on. Gemma Hurley, one of the co-writers, has done some producing and writing on a couple shorts. And then there's also Jed Shepard, has worked with Rob on some of his previous shorts as well. So it seems like... Jed and Rob have worked together, so that makes sense that they would do this. And most of the actresses and actors in this haven't really done a whole lot from what I've been able to gather. I did find out that Gemma Ward was in Wonder Woman as one of the Queen's Guard, and most of the ladies, though, have worked with Rob slash Jed in previous shorts that he has done as well. Now, I did find it interesting that Teddy was in an episode of Vikings, and Ginny was in a few episodes as well. And then... There is a creature that is shown later in this movie. It's portrayed by James Swanton. He actually is in another movie, or another short called Salt, where he was also a demon in that, where he's the demon in this movie, with working with Rob previously, which I thought was kind of a cool little thing here. I should also point out now, every character in this movie, the real name of the actor or actress is their name in the movie, except Edward Leonard is actually Teddy, but everybody else, their first name is matching to their real name in real life. Now, this was a film that I kept hearing a lot about, and I was intrigued to check it out. It seems that some people really liked it, while others not so much. Since it was a 2020 film and had a short runtime, I decided to give it a viewing on Friday Night with Jamie. I'll get into it a little bit later how it affected us. First, though, the synopsis is six friends hire a medium to hold a seance via Zoom during lockdown, but they get far more than they bargain for as things go wrong quickly. Now, we start this movie off with Haley as she's starting a Zoom meeting. She invites a bunch of her friends, and we follow her as she gets up and, you know, gets herself set up to do this. While she's away from her computer, someone tries to join, but it needs to be accepted. Haley then hears something being thrown at her window, and she checks to see that it is Gemma. She is then accepted, and Gemma goes home to get on her computer as well. And we get to actually see something that happens with some feedback if you are connected to a Zoom meeting with your cell phone as well as on a, or a laptop computer. And I also want to state here that this is all done from desktop, and I'll dive a little bit more into that, but I also want to give you kind of the heads up here if you have not seen this yet. Now, the rest of the crew starts to join of Emma, Radina, Carolyn, and we get to learn a little bit more about some of them through their interactions as they kind of join. Gemma is a bit of a prankster and kind of a jerk, 
Radina just moved in with her boyfriend at the start of quarantine, and his name is Alan. Things aren't going great as they really don't seem to know each other all that well. And if you don't really know each other and you try to start moving in together, there's going to be some bumping of heads as I recently moved in with my girlfriend of Jamie during this kind of in the middle of this quarantine as well. But we had been together for some time before we did that as we are coming up on one year here in a couple weeks. Carolyn lives at home with her dad and we see also has a set up Zoom in a, you know, background type thing. And what I mean there is that she has recorded herself and you can set up your backgrounds in there. And she has one of her walking into her room, opening a drawer and start brushing her hair. But it's kind of cool thing that she's playing with making a joke about making friends during quarantine. And it's because you can still see her as she's recording herself and talking to them. But the background changes where this other form of her walks in and does all this stuff. Just kind of wanted to fill in what I meant there. Someone who also joins is their friend Teddy. He has moved in with his rich girlfriend, Ginny, at her parents' place. And then finally, we get to meet Salen, who is going to be their medium as she joins as well. Now, she tries to get them to take this seance seriously, but it isn't going very well from the start. Is they first make a drinking game that every time she says, I believe, Astro Plane, they're going to take a shot. And Teddy and some of the other people, which I believe another one is actually Emma, makes jokes where she gets her to say the word again but then Teddy ends up leaving when Jenny interrupts and closes his laptop and it's very kind of a rude thing to do and this is really starting to bother Haley who really just wants everybody to take it seriously when they finally settle in Gemma is spooked by something she claims someone grabbed her neck and that his name is someone that she knew while she was a child who was very nice to her when something bad happened now she seems quite shaken up and something weird happens on Salen's screen I don't really necessarily know what it is, but it looks like something flies at her computer, but then she is, gets disconnected and removed from the meeting. After she disappears, Gemma reveals the truth that nothing really happened to her. She was making it all up to kind of get something to happen and kind of make it more lively. The problem, though, is that something really seems to start happening as each of these women and Teddy, when he finally rejoins is you know messing with them and it could be a spirit that they've conjured and by not taking things seriously it could be you know wreaking havoc on them and their lives now that's where i want to leave my recap because i don't really want to go into spoilers for this as there's not a whole lot going on to it and a lot of it you really just need to see to kind of experience everything and i don't want to kind of spoil where things start to happen but i do want to give you a little bit more background and expanding on the synopsis you know for my recap there what i gave is literally just half of the movie what I find interesting is that from my understanding as I've never held a Zoom meeting, but I do know the free version only allots you about an hour, I think. So this movie has a runtime of 56 minutes, which I dig as this is keeping with the realism. I will say as I have done a few Zoom meetings, so as a participant during this quarantine, so being able to understand you know, some of the things they're doing here helps with the realism in my opinion. Next, I should say that this movie did freak me and Jamie out. I don't think it will work on everyone, so I just kind of want to preface that now. So if it doesn't scare you, like, I mean, I guess you can make fun of me if you want to, but I mean, don't come in expecting to be completely terrified, as I think this works on certain people. Now, some of the things, though, that's what, you know, freaked me out is it ticks some of my boxes of things that scare me. What I really like is that we can see things happening behind characters who don't always know what that is going on there. Other characters in the meeting will notice it and they'll point it out and this is just something that helped to ramp up the fear for me. And we get some effective things that are just glimpses at times. It is enough to freak me out but not enough you know, for me to critique it. Now I have heard some people on social media saying that having been stuck in the house for this quarantine and needing to use Zoom to see friends or for work that they don't really want to see it in their entertainment. 
Maybe since for me, I don't use it a lot, I actually really dug this concept of what they're trying to do here. Do I think this movie is great? No. I think it's good, though. And I have a feeling that when life goes back to a new normal, we're going to look back on this little one as like a time capsule and be more impressed with what this movie did. Now, I've heard a few different titles thrown around for what we should call this subgenre, and desktop horror seems to be one that's gaining a lot of traction, and I'm not going to lie, I kind of dig that idea because that's really what we're doing here is getting to see you know, the recording of people's desktops, and I mean, I've done just recently two interviews on Zoom, and this is exactly what they are. I think it's kind of a cool, like, new subgenre of a subgenre of found footage or, like, faux documentary type thing to play with here. The ones that I've seen so far, I dig what they're doing somewhat. What really makes this work for me is the realism of what they're doing here. None of the actresses really stand out to me, but I could feel like they all have a relationship and know each other, so I will give credit there. And I think a lot of that is what I was bringing up previously, is that they all seem to have worked on shorts with the writer and director before. So I think that might account for some of that, is they know how to play off each other, and I think that adds a sense of realism. Kind of going along with that, you know, we have Haley who gets annoyed with Gemma for not taking things seriously. Gemma seems like that friend who kind of just, you know doesn't always take things seriously and makes jokes out of it and sometimes gets under her friend's skin. So props to Moore how she played it. I think Webb seems like one of the younger ones in the group where Bishop feels like someone who is cooped up who just wants to do something different. There are hints with Drandova that she might make rash decisions that aren't always the best and her friends know it. Ward lives with her father and she just seems like a good person who's there to try to help him out while all this is happening. The rest really do round out to help, you know, shape them. And this is all just a little small time frame that I got from their interactions. But I'm impressed that I could figure out these character traits to them. I could be wrong about them, but that's just kind of what I picked up on. And I was saying, I'm impressed if I can do that in such a short amount of time. Being that this is a type of found footage movie where we're just kind of getting, you know, the desktop video of all of them or from their phone, it makes it interesting with the frames that we get. So you really don't have a whole like world you have to necessarily deal with. You just really have to have this square and you need the actors to kind of move things around to show more if you need it. But if not, it makes it kind of easier. And having worked on a feature film before, it's kind of fun to look at things and be like, oh, I was hiding in that frame, you know, in that position. So it's something you can do kind of here since you have a smaller one to work with. For a lot of the movie, though, we're seeing the gallery view of Zoom, where all of them are on screen. What I liked is that when I was trying to rapidly look from all the frames for what was going to happen next, it kept me engaged. It will zoom in and focus when you get the, you know, when they're using the speaker mode to highlight the one that is talking, so it kind of gives you, to, you know, a much bigger frame to work with as well at times. They seem to use as many of the features of you can, you know, from Zoom. I thought the look of the spirit in the movie was quite creepy. We only get glimpses of it, but that is far more terrifying me sometimes. Aside from that, we get some cool haunting effects that seem to be done practical for the most part. And I can really only think of something with Jenny that was done with CGI. It didn't look great, but I'm not going to take anything away from that because it's a very small moment that it does happen. And like I said, the makeup that they did on the creature I thought looked really good for me. The last thing I wanted to cover would be the sound design. We don't get music at all really from what I remember which I'm glad I think that adds a sense of realism here what we do get though is ambient noise now there is a music box that Teddy has as everybody was asked to bring an object to try to conjure up a spirit to speak with and it's pretty creepy when we hear it and it comes back later in the movie now there are bumping noises and things of that effect I kind of feel like if you've seen paranormal activity movies they're kind of playing with things like that 
Now, it really does add a sense of ambiance here of what they're going for, which helped, again, build the sense of, you know, tension and realism for me. Now, before I rounded this out, you know, with my, you know, final thoughts and everything like that, I just have some trivia for you. This was filmed during the coronavirus pandemic in 2020. Although scripted, the cast was allowed to improvise. For instance, the moment when Haley sneezes and the cast reacts, that was not planned. So I think that also helps to build a sense of realism. This was actually based on a short film by the director, Rob Savage, that was done as a prank to his friends during a Zoom chat. He pretended to be attacked by something in his attic, but he didn't want to inform his friends about this in order to get their genuine reactions to it. The video was released online and went viral, and then Rob approached Shudder about making a feature-length version is what we see here. In order to get the cast worked up before certain scenes and takes, the director would make them watch certain horror film clips. It doesn't really go into which ones, but I thought that was kind of a cool thing to kind of get them in the right mind frame. Parts of the script were redacted so the cast didn't know what it would you know, happen throughout. Certain things were pre-recorded and played back for the cast to get their genuine reactions as well. I think these are all strategic, and I'm often wondering if, you know, Savage being doing shorts and everything like that, if that kind of helps him to create, you know, some of the effect that he gets from the actors and actresses in this movie. So I think he did some really good things here, and I can see why he has won some awards. So just in closing now, with that said, I thought this movie was pretty effective for me. Is this going to be, you know, loved and found terrifying for everyone? No, it won't. It worked for me, though, because it does a lot of things that freak me out. I like the realism of the length of the movie with a Zoom session. What they did for the haunting of the people was good, and it uses things that freak me out. The acting isn't great, but it doesn't have to be. It felt natural, which is more important, of a group of people that know each other, and I picked up little things about each of them as they went. The effects were good, and the ambient use of sound was as well. I would say this is a good movie, and would recommend this if... What I'm saying here, you know, works for you. And then my rating on the movie was an 8 out of 10. Now, that's all I really wanted to delve into here. I don't think I have really anything extra that I wanted to kind of, you know, flesh out or anything. I don't really necessarily think there's not a deep enough story to do that or things that I wanted to kind of, you know, go over that I haven't already. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close this show out, I want to thank you for listening to episode number 41 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And then just to close everything out, if you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you have any questions or anything that I've talked about on here that you don't necessarily agree with or anything like that, even if you want... If you send me an email there, I will read them off here on the show just so I, I can try to you know get a little bit more participation over on that aspect of it. If you want to read any of the written reviews on anything on this episode or any of the past ones, that's Reviews of the Dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. And then if you want to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then also, I'm on the FlickChat app. So if you want to download that on iOS or Android, you can do so. And my join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And if you reach out to me on any of those type of platforms or everything like that, I will read anything that you'd like me to on here, just like I said, so I can get a little bit more participation. And then speaking of participation, if you could, whatever you're listening to this on, if you could rate, review, on there just so that way it gives me you know a little bit more exposure and then it also helps me to figure out what i'm doing that you do like and what i'm doing that you don't just so i can make this the best show possible so in advance i do appreciate your help there and then on the next episode for number 42 i'm not necessarily sure what i'm going to do yet i do believe though i'm going to watch from 1960 is peeping tom and then I think I might end up finally watching The Hunt, as that's a movie that I haven't seen yet from this year, as I did want to kind of... I know Peeping Tom is kind of considered to be up there with Psycho as being a proto-slasher. kind of wanted to find two that would pair together, so I think I might watch both of those as the featured reviews. And then, of course, I will always have, you know, all sorts of, you know, mini-reviews on there as well. But regardless, I want to thank you for listening and coming on this journey with me. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing so and you have a great time. And this is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off.